Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. T2 train spotting is over. First, there's an opportunity. Then, there is a betrayal. Hello, Mark. So, what have you been up to for 20 years? Choose life. Choose Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and hope that someone, somewhere, cares. Missed you, mate. I missed you too, Spud. Choose looking up old flames, wishing you'd done it all differently. Do you still take heroin? No. And choose watching history repeat itself. Hello, Franco. Simon. I'm home. 
Choose your future. Call the police. What shall I say? Just tell them we're dead. Choose reality TV, slut shaming, revenge porn. Yeah. Choose a zero hour contract, a two hour journey to work, and choose the same for your kids, only worse. And smother the pain with an unknown dose of an unknown drug made in somebody's kitchen. And then take a deep breath. All right, Andy, here we are. D2 train spotting. You hadn't seen it. I'm very excited to hear what you had to say. Yeah, I, um, first, I just have to say, I still don't really get why they call this T2. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. I even looked for it. In the trivia on uh, on IMDb, which, you know, I, you know, people put this here, who knows if it's really right, but it says this. While announcing the sequel in an interview, director Danny Boyle joked that he wanted to call it T2 if James Cameron would allow it, whose film Terminator 2 Judgment Day is commonly abbreviated as T2. The cast later explained that the title was the one they thought the characters in the movie would have chosen just so they could annoy Cameron. Since Terminator 2 isn't legally known as T2, Boyle could use the title without permission. However, he settled for T2 train spotting because the internet search term T2 still led mostly to sites affiliated with Terminator 2. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know how so well that holds up. Funny. <laughs> like, it is funny, but even so, when I do a search for T2, <laughs> it's actually neither of them. You know how who really has the market is T2, an Australian tea shop chain, the Portland Timbers 2, that's T- Timbers 2, headed by Coach Shannon Murray, uh, T2 Tennis, the flexible way to play. I get no movie. when I So what do you get when you just search T2? Uh, okay, so I searched T2. I get T2T, the the T company. I get uh-huh. T2 Systems, uh, yep. a parking, parking management, management system. I get T2, the new public square. I get Audio Science Review, and then I get Terminator 2 Judgment Day. So I actually do get it, and much farther down my page, I actually do get T2 Train Spotting, but I get two Terminator 2 Judgment Day searches before train spotting comes up. It goes it goes first to T20 screwdrivers and T25 Torx bits before I get to to anything related to movies. What have I been searching that it would so bork my You're, you're clearly dealing with a lot of torque bits in your house. I what that I I think says I'm with you. I don't understand the title either. It does I don't love it. The way that they wrote it on screen when the title finally comes up in the film, I felt like, oh, maybe it's like a platform because it kind of has that that look like they do on, on like train platforms or parking garages. It's kind of that block letter T2. I'm like, oh, maybe that's what they're kind of implying. Like I was like, maybe we're going to be at a T2 platform at some point in the film. We never were. Uh, so I guess to that end, I think it's funny that the, they thought the characters would think it annoyed James Cameron. That is kind of funny, but it's a little bit of a meta title to that end. And so I don't know. I, I don't love it. I don't love it as a title. Speaking of the adaptation, right? And I have not read the book. This is also, the, from what I understand, they massaged some of uh, some of or a lot of the sequel or, or another book by Irving, uh, what's his name? porno into this movie. So this movie, the first movie was based on train spotting. This movie is based on train spotting and porno. That's how, how I understand. Is that fair? Well, and I think quite a bit just kind of original. I, I think that yeah. they loosely pulled characters from those two stories, but I, I think you look at stuff in porno that kind of relate to the... Because that what happens is that's 10 year later uh, sequel, and you're following these characters as they kind of move out of the drug scene and get into the porn scene. And so what we're really left with from porno is that uh, sick boy is working to open up this massage parlor. Like, there is some of that element that's pretty much it. in there. And I think I think that's largely it. So, okay. I haven't read it. I haven't read either. Uh, but my that's my understanding of the book. Well, and given all that, it would make even less sense to call this porno. I mean, there's there's very there's precious little porno in this movie, and that would be a hard title to market. I think. Yes. No. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and since since this movie came out, they actually repackaged the book porno as Train Spotting or as T Two Train Spotting. So. Oh, that's interesting. All right. Well, you know, get more get more copies sold off the shelves. All right. So, initial thoughts of the film, though. I mean, you had seen this 
before. Did you see this when it came out in theaters? Yeah. You did? Okay. Yeah, there were pieces of it that I really connected to, but the, for me, the the central story, which may or may not surprise you, is Spud's. That's the that's the reason I love this movie, is because of Spud. It's not because of Renton, it's not because of Simon, it's not because of Begbie. I have lots of, of things to say about those characters, but for me, the arc of Spud, losing his family, you know, dealing with his his place in his journey of addiction, and writing down his memoirs and calling his memoir memoir train spotting is a delightfully meta turn for this duo of movies that makes all of it make sense for me and i i uh i just find a a real connection to that yeah i mean he's definitely a, a strong character it was an interesting return to the the core four uh, men that we were following in that first film and and getting kind of a sense as to where they were and and seeing how they kind of took all of the elements that we had ended with in the last film where where Renton made off with all the money, Begbie ended up in jail, and seeing kind of what happened with Sick Boy and Spuds, it was interesting to see, okay, you know, I can see that this is where things would be 20 years later. I buy into that. And so I, to that end, I felt like, you know what, okay, they, they made some choices to kind of continue the story in a way that makes sense, and I, I enjoyed the return to them. Yep, I agree. Well, when this movie came out, it was no surprise. Rated R for drug use, language throughout, strong sexual content, graphic nudity, and some violence. And some blackmail. No dead babies, but surprising return of the toilets in a lot of different ways. <laughs> so many ways. Uh, so this one it was interesting watching uh, interviews with McGregor in particular, talking about what the character, what this movie means to him. Really, it's interesting to see these actors talking about their experience making a movie that previously they thought didn't need to be made and feeling pretty strongly that this they they weren't interested in revisiting this character until they saw Hodge's script and and said okay you found a way in that I never anticipated and was never interested in making did uh, did you at any point watching this movie like you didn't watch it when it first came out and I'm curious if you fell in any way into that category that it was not a movie that necessarily needed to be made and so you deprioritized it in some way well, I think that's exactly it. And I, you know, I worked with somebody at the time who was very excited about the return to this world. And I was like, well, I guess, you know, I wasn't really feeling like they needed a return to this world. And so I feel like perhaps my opinions of legacy sequels might have shifted a little bit because I feel like in the last couple of years, there have been some surprising legacy sequels that I'm like, you know what? Uh, maybe this isn't always a bad thing. Like when you see Blade Runner 2049, when you see, uh, Top Gun Maverick, these things where you're like, okay, if people come to it with the right intentions, I am kind of up for it. I think that there can be a lot of good returning to these worlds. Uh, we had in our pre-show chat for our members, we talked about some legacy sequels of, of films that, you know, that would be an interesting film to do a legacy sequel to. And it's kind of an interesting conversation to, about the scope of legacy sequels. And yeah, when this came out, I just I don't feel like I was very interested in a return to the world of train spotting. I really enjoyed what train spotting did, and I just didn't think I needed more of it. I don't know even know if I knew that Irvine Welsh had written porno, so I don't know if it was it's not like I held, you know, it was expecting that to be the movie and I was like, "Oh, well, if that's the movie, I don't want to see it." It's not like that. I think I just felt like, "Huh, okay. Well, I don't know, maybe I'll rent it one day." It just it wasn't anything to, as you said. I wasn't prioritizing. I actually, for all the same reasons, I'm not sure why I prioritized it as something that I wanted to see. Uh, maybe it was a, I, I feel like the first movie was important to a lot of people that I care about and trust. And so I should give this a shot. Maybe that was it. But I, I found, um, my experience with, with the movie was, was really, really solid with some areas that I feel like were questionable and actually linger in that space of why did this, why would this story be a part of this story? I, 
I struggle a little bit with what felt like hoops that they needed to jump through to make sure that all the characters end up in the same place. And that largely is Robert Carlyle's uh, story, which is uh, Begbie. Um, I knew from the last movie that he was going to be in chaos, like his story was going to be in chaos and that this would be largely, a, a you know, for him, would this end up being a vengeance story? I assumed that it would. And it turns out, look, it is. They give him a little bit of sway, a uh, sort of complexity by also giving this, uh, giving him a chance to reconcile with his family, his son. Um, and, and I think that's a really neat moment in, in the movie, but largely there's a little bit of the of the here's a storyline with a, a villain and he's coming for you. And there is a lot of other stuff in this movie that's about m- aging, aging as men, uh, midlife crises, uh, th- like the, the value of of reconnecting and old friendships and how to get over hard things in our past. Like all of those are really great. And I wonder if the Begbie line is a distraction for me that that for me feels like the least sophisticated way to approach his character and lead to the uh, climax that's otherwise a violent fight what do you think about all that well i have a question for you first uh because i think that there is an interesting element i think when the film when the first film ends the way it does i think bringing Begbie in this way makes sense to me. Like, I I don't think I have any issues with that aspect of Begbie. So my question for you is, do you feel part of your issue is the fact that it's not like, well, 20 years, your 20 years are up and you're a free man. Don't screw up again. And he's released from prison instead of what they do, where he's still violent and angry and a real problem. And has to escape in order to get out. Uh, and do you feel like the fact that they had to stage a whole escape scene is the element that pushes it too far for you instead of just having him released? Or do you feel it's the entirety of his character story? I think it's more than that. Although I will say, I in terms of beats, like individual beats for Begbie, I his escape is thrilling, right? At having himself get stabbed, having them having him stab the liver instead of you know the someplace that was less troublesome. All of that, I think, they're fun ways to get him out in the open. I just feel like when you compare what they did with with Spud, who is also like kind of a ludicrously unsophisticated character. They gave him a sophisticated out. Like his narrative of handwriting all of these memoirs is a really lovely way to wrap up his character and give him the ability to sort of resolve his his uh, his story. I already had Crazy Begbie in the first movie. And of all the characters, I feel like Begbie is the least changed across these two movies across this arc right simon you could make the the case that he's not uh, you know he's not much changed like we fill in kind of roughly right where he is but spud i think becomes a a, a different character by the end of this movie and renton is absolutely dealing with different things in this movie than he was the last and begbie is just a maniacal force well, he's still dealing with stuff. I mean, he's we're getting family life with him in this film, which we never had in the first film. And so that's a whole other side of his story that is brought up and, and you know, memories of his father. And as you said, that that final moment that he has with his wife and son, uh, it really is quite powerful. And that actually makes for an interesting moment for him as a character, which is interesting because it 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 shows him acknowledging that they need to move on even though he can't and so i didn't end up having a huge issue with that with him i mean to a certain extent i can agree with you it's like you know it it just pushes us into a place where we're going to have this big action uh you know this chase this fight at the end of the film i don't know if i have as as big a problem with it because i just feel like that's kind of where they set up Begbie at the end of the last film. He's an angry, angry, angry character. He has a lot of anger, especially toward Renton because of Renton stealing all the money. 
and uh, leading to him getting put in jail for all this time. And uh, not just because of the money, but because he had nearly killed a guy and a lot of other reasons. And so I guess I guess I just didn't end up having the issues that you did with it um, as far as that goes. Did it need to build to that big fight scene? Maybe that's they could have come up with something a little different than that. But I don't know. In my head, I'm like, you know what? It fits his character. We got some interesting stuff with the family. So I I didn't end up having quite the issues with it, I guess. Yeah, I hear it. I and, and I recognize that I'm I might be an island here, but wouldn't it have been interesting if if it felt at all like jail had taught him something that that he would come out of jail after all these years and have figured out a, a change in his life and then be reintroduced to these old guys and discover that it turns out he hasn't changed all that much and have to deal with the the inner conflict that exists there. Like, I, I just feel like there's more they could do with this character than just make him a constant slugger. And um, and and I it's I was just found him tiresome. Like, I get Begbie. I get it. And everybody else is doing something that's interesting except him. It was the it was the most predictable sort of angle that that I, I think they could have taken. And so that that's really it. And and again, it's not a huge it's not like I have huge trouble with it. It's just this is why it's not a five star movie for me. Right. Like the, spoiler alert, like this is why. It is. Um, I, I wanted to see more of him struggling with change, and I never got any of that. Like I, I felt like we had that one scene, and I guess I'm, what I'm saying is that's not enough. Well, speaking of characters going through issues, one of the one of the things that uh, Renton is dealing with that I did want to talk about is as a character going through stuff. You know, he kind of when he when he returns to Edinburgh after having lived in Amsterdam for these past 20 years, he lies to sick boy about what he's been up to. And as it, as it turns out, his, his uh, wife is uh, divorcing him. He can't have kids likely from all the, uh, well, I don't know, presumably, I guess it's never really stated, but I, I presumed it was from all of the intense drug use and everything, but he also is having some serious health issues. And we start the film off with him working out on a treadmill and then collapsing off of the treadmill in a, you know, something that I'm always afraid is going to happen to me when I'm on a treadmill. It's just one of those yeah, moments totally. where you just, where you slip and go sliding all the way to the back of the wall behind you. Um, but it's just one of those starts to a film and so he clearly is going through these issues trying to figure out what to do with his own life trying to avoid the divorce that he's about to go through and so you know and, and danny boyle has said you know he never intentionally wanted these films to seem like they're renton's films he wanted it to be kind of a a story about this group and he acknowledges that the voiceover certainly lends to making it feel like renton's film for the first one but he always intended it to be kind of about these four guys or at least the group and then obviously tommy had died in that first one but Renton in this one, his story arc, I guess his is the one that I ended up struggling with the most. Like, I, I found him to be interesting. His draw to Veronica I thought was interesting. His his inability to figure out how to move forward with his life in the right way. He's getting pushed out of his accounting job because of this merger between these companies, and he doesn't know what else he's going to do, and he's almost 50, and it's that point in your life where you're like, if that if I'm pushed out of that, what do I do? And uh, so he ends up kind of taking up with Sick Boy. So it was an interesting angle for his story to take. But at the same time, I felt like of the stories in the film, his is the one that kind of there are a lot of elements in it that kind of get left by the wayside, like his whole health story. He talks about that a little bit. We start with him going through all of that and dealing with this heart issue. And all of that kind of gets dropped once we kind of go into the business dealings with Sick Boy. And that was the one that I ended up being most frustrated with, because I, I as much as I liked his character's journey, I felt like they somehow never quite finished giving us all of the information about his character. Did you have any issues with his story at all? Well, and, and here's the question. So his his heart issue, is that to you why uh, like his why he fell off the treadmill? Yeah, I mean, absolutely why. I mean, it seemed like, I don't know if it was a heart attack or, I mean, he says specifically what it is later, and I, I didn't write it down, but some sort of cardioid thing. In, where, yeah, I mean, like the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
where the whole thing made it seem like he's got a heart attack. He's very concerned about this. Uh, you know, he's gotten himself sober uh, after these 20 years and and has not been doing any drugs or anything. Um, and But he is still at this place where all of the abuse that he did to his body when he was younger has really put him in a place where he's kind of falling apart. And it seemed like a big concern about that, like this midlife crisis, this depression, these health issues. And then at the end of the film, it's like, well, okay, where are we left with? I feel like, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I felt like by the time we got to the end of the film, I was huh, okay. I don't know. I don't know what to take about this journey that, that Ren's moved on with, you know? This is, uh, this is the conflict that I was faced with exactly what you're talking about. When he falls off the treadmill, I did not think that it was related to his heart issue. Because what I immediately saw was a guy who maybe was just, you know, hyper-focused and tripped. And then we linger on him on the floor, and his eyes are open, but he's not moving. And that, to me, was, okay, we're dealing with some severe depression right now. He's just not moving because he, he can't. And I thought that's that's kind of where we are. I didn't see just the way he fell. It didn't feel like anything heart-related. Mostly, I guess, because he never grabbed his heart or his arm or anything. Like He didn't communicate it physically. So later, when he brings up this cardiac insufficiency that his heart is borked and his wife's divorced, divorcing him and he's losing everything, um, it felt like his journey to me was one of um, like the the perils, the long term perils of living as an addict. Even an addict currently in recovery is still an addict in the uh, in the world of view of this movie. And I liked that. Like I liked the fact that he was so regularly, deeply challenged, even twenty years later, with this lifestyle that he left from, you know, when he moved to Amsterdam and the fact that he dips back into it and ends up living with sick boy and ends up having their experience. Well, there's that then. Uh, and they shoot up again. Like all of those things I thought were, uh, were really good. But to your point, where, where, whether the heart stuff, like it, the, the end, the movie on the couch together and, there is no indication that he is dealing with any sort of, of uh, like, health trauma. So why did they need it? He's already got enough going on. Why did they need those, like, two lines in the movie that they never play again? Like, it, it never plays. Well, I, I like that they're there. I, I wouldn't want them to remove it. I just would want them to give us a little more that there, there is some sense of them dealing with it, you know? Well, that's what I'm saying. Either remove it or give us more, but where it is yeah. is nothing. And yeah, I already, yeah. I get my perspective is I already had enough with his his head and midlife crisis and depression. Like, I, I was okay with that trauma. I didn't need the additional stuff, but as long as it's there, show me how it impacts his life. Yeah. I really do like the actual end of the film where he goes back to uh, to live with his dad. I I, I I don't know. I assumed he was going to go back and like either live with his dad or kind of just go take care of his dad or something like that. But going back there, that hug of theirs, like coming back together after, you know, we kind of have that that beautiful, beautiful shot of the two of them sitting there <gasps> oh my where, God. talking about the, his mom who had passed away and her shadow is still on the wall. Wow. What Crushing. a way yeah. to kind of depict that in a very heavy, touching way. But then to have him go into his room, put on the record, which he stopped earlier, like we see him put on the record, Lust for Life. And this time, and I suppose it speaks to earlier, he was depressed, he was going through all this stuff, he didn't have that Lust for Life. Here, the Lust for Life record he puts on and he starts playing it and dancing. And we get that really cool shot where it looks like his room takes off like a train and just it just extends you know, into the credits. It's really cool. Fantastic. I really liked that it gives us this sense, okay, maybe through all of this, he somehow has found a Lust for Life again and he's willing to kind of give it a try. I just, I don't know. I guess I wanted to get a a little more of that at the end, like, what does it mean for his heart? What is he going to do about work? And and maybe I'm asking for too much in a story where it's more about the character and like that the character was able to move past some of some of his issues. But even there, I was like, well, I just wish that I felt like I saw him moving past some of those issues. And it wasn't just, hey, we survived from Begbie and his craziness. 
now let's now let's uh, just oh oh and Veronica of course made off with all the money but hey you know what I'm gonna go hang out with my dad and I just I wish that there was just a little more sign of some of that in here you know yes yeah totally and uh, you know for me I think the ending is that last shot um, I actually am a little I I guess maybe I'm more okay with the uncertainty about his character because of the way I was looking at his arc of addiction like the 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 head canon for me was uh, about his arc of addiction and the uncertainty at the end of the movie is he had done a lot of work to get himself out of that of that lifestyle and here he was back in not only the with the same people but in the same room where he, you know, fought off his addiction and saw the, you know, robot baby on the ceiling and all of those things before. So that uncertainty to me, I mean, he's at a fork. Is he falling back into the exact same, you know, train wreck that was his life before? Or is he really going to help his widower of a father and really take on some of the the work of of growth in a commute in the the community is this a story of you can never go home again you know or is it a story of of reconciliation and growth and and i think the fact that i don't know is satisfying at the end for me which is uh, you know i i consider that a win uh for the movie and, and the fact that you know of all of these things i don't think anybody dies in this movie, like we lost Kevin McKidd's character in the last movie and there was and we lost the baby in the last movie. This movie, we we don't lose anybody to the trauma of of drug use. So it, I don't know. I don't know what to to make of that. Like, I think to your point, it's more this is a movie that's very much centered on the the characters that we have and the degree to which they've overcome the trauma of their of their past. And and I like that. And I like that it's not quite so heavy handed uh, in that regard. I think this movie would have been harder to watch if it were people closer to my age going through exactly what they went through in the first movie. We do get a near suicide. Uh, Spud is in such a uh, distraught place early in the film. He can't shake his addiction. He's ruined his chances to kind of continue any career, everything that he does, he's always late to, and um, he he's late for taking care of uh, his kid with Gail. And is who who does return? We see Shirley Henderson return as as Gail in this film, and so he's like everything that he has, he fails at, and so he keeps returning to, as he says, his only friend who has never left him is always there, and that's heroin. He can't shake it, but he does decide, I'm going to end my life. He leaves the note. That sequence was stunning, the way that that was crafted, um, you know, with him uh, putting the bag over his head, trying to kill himself, and then cutting to kind of a fantastical version of what's happening where he's in the chair and he he drops off the side of the building. And then the way that we are brought, we bring um, Mark into all of that, and we have Mark kind of landing under him to catch him and pulling <laughs> Again, going back to Danny Boyle and his brilliance in the way that he crafts these stories and knowing the balance between drama and humor, <laughs> when Mark arrives to try pulling the plastic bag on his off of his face, only to have Spud like throw up multiple times in it. Yeah, in the bag, was, like the bag explodes the bag with vomit. With vomit. <laughs> it was so disgusting, and it's I was, awful. you know, I was going from like this is horrible to oh my god, that just happened. <laughs> In the space of a millisecond, it was hilarious. And so, um, but it's just, it's powerful. And so to that end, that's the closest we come to a death. And I suppose that's, that is where Boyle and Hodge and, and the team decided to bring these stories. Like, we're not at a place where we're going to be having these people overdosing, but now we're in a place where they're dealing with the psychological trauma and the the baggage that they've had all these past 20 years, and how are they able to find ways to move forward? Yes, uh, absolutely. And to me, I loved the way they tied the characters to their past, but not just to the first movie, to their childhood. Like, we get these flashbacks on, uh, you know, old film stock of these characters sitting with each other. We get, you know, Ewan McGregor, you know, and his great speech to Begbie about, like, you know, sitting with the older kid as he was a new kid in school, like that these guys have been together for a long time. The, I think Johnny Lee Miller's, uh, uh, Simon's uh, conversation, like his speech to Renton in the restaurant, sitting with Veronica talking about how, you know, 
we shared a needle our first time. You went first. Like, your blood is in my veins, man. Like, that's, that is, in the context of the story, a setup, but in the context of their lives, as authentic as we ever get with these guys. I mean, that, that story about, like, look how far we've come is, and and how it like represents how much you've hurt me over the the last twenty years by not being here, and that I, I found those just crushingly real moments in this movie that that really resonated that lift the movie out of of something that it could have been the childhood friendships that we do see also ties into the idea of friendships over time and how these things change and evolve and, and shift. And, you know, the fact that we see that all of these kids knew each other from the time they were in grade school together, including Begbie, who had been held back a few times, and he's kind of a little bit older than the rest of them. But you get this sense that they've all known each other all of this time. They've grown up together. They are they are kind of a core team. And things shift over time, but finding that these four have somehow continued finding ways together over, you know, the 20 years between the two films and, you know, the 20, uh, 15 years, perhaps, before that first film. I mean, it really says a lot to the journey that they are working on exploring. I, I think that's probably it. When I talk about, like, my challenges with Begbie's story, and, and I have some similar challenges with Spud's story, that so much of their stories in this movie are separate and apart from the foursome, right? They end up coming together at the end. But Spud, too, I mean, he has his delusions where he's trying to get healthy and he goes into the boxing ring. There's that great hallucinatory moment where he thinks he's raging Spud and <laughs> uh, and it turns out he's he gets knocked out very, very quickly. Uh, I like his story so much. But much of it is separate and apart from the other four. And one of the things that I thought was so special about the first movie is that they're challenged. Their challenges in life are challenges that they face uh, against each other and together. So I, I think that is maybe what I was looking for in, in this movie originally, and certainly on rewatch. That I I was I was just hoping for more of the movie to spend time dealing with the characters together. To to that end. Simon and Renton together was great. Like much of their story is together. And I liked it. I liked revisiting Johnny Lee Miller as a performer and Simon as a, as, you know, as a character and, you know, dealing with like watching him uh, expunge so much of the rage that he's carried for the last 20 years was a, a great experience. Uh, yeah, I really enjoy his journey. I, I, Sometimes I was like, is is there, like, where am I landing with him? Is he actually still working to betray Renton by the time we get to the end? Or, or yeah, what point is he giving that up? And and there was a little bit of a struggle with that because that was something I felt like, eh, I, I don't know how, I don't know if I'm completely buying into where we're going with things because I feel like, uh, or I feel like that that relationship, like he's he has so much anger toward Renton that I I I I never quite felt like they gave me the final resolution that I wanted between the two of them. I one hundred percent agree. Yeah. To to your point though, I did really enjoy their time together. Even a scene like as much as it in the end doesn't allow for perhaps other elements that might be more important as far as some of the other characters development and everything but you still get a scene like when they go into the 1690 pub and they do that whole riff on you know and, and you know that was you know kick, kick all the catholics out or whatever that whole song that they you know sing God, off the spur of the moment really funny hilarious hilarious scene yeah it's not it doesn't quite like that probably could have been cut because it didn't necessarily give us too much other than the two of them figuring out how to do something on, on the spur of the moment and kind of just a, a character moment for the two of their kind of their friendship. Uh, but it is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. That scene. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that builds toward that, the, the whole reconciliation arc between the two of them. And I think it presents the, the case for maybe why Simon you know, ends up making the decisions he does in regard to Renton, like putting Begbie on the case and trying to send Begbie to Amsterdam. Like, that was uh, a great little moment, right? It it cements the fact that Simon is struggling. And I think, I, I think for me, 
Johnny Lee Miller's portrayal of that struggle is strong. It is not necessarily explicitly resolved when they're sitting on the couch together at the end of the movie, but I take it as writ that the fact that they're sitting on the couch together at the end of the movie is enough. I suppose you're right. It would be interesting to have a little more. Uh, I, I Yeah, I guess we're getting enough character beats to allow us to make our own decisions with the characters, and that's perhaps what Boyle and Hodge wanted to do. Um, it, it just, I felt like the first film had been a little more explicit with stuff, and this film I feel like it's a little looser. I guess it's not a huge issue, but it did, as you said, this one I, I don't love quite as much as the first film. Yeah. What do you make of revisiting Diane's character? That felt shoehorned, but it does give us one of the wonderful ironic lines of the movie, Renton, she's too young for you, <laughs> which I think right. is actually well-placed. What did what'd you think of just seeing her showing up here? I was very disappointed by how little we had of Diane in the film. It made sense in context of the story. She she went to a totally different type of school, came from a totally different life, ended up on a path that made a lot of sense probably for her her lot in life, you know? And and so I like that journey. I like seeing where she ended up. They had to come up with a way to bring her in and I suppose this worked, but yeah, I it's just like I felt like it was one of those, this is a moment from a legacy sequel where we're like, well, we just got to write her in in some way. Okay, hey, she's the attorney that Sick Boy needs at one point. Sure. And to that end, it did feel a little easy. It it felt stunt casting to me. Like, just Kelly McDonald has done a lot of wonderful things. She was in this movie like all these other guys. We have to to put her back in here somewhere. It just, it because she got such a bit part, it was... It was hard. And yet, no one else, no other character could have delivered that line. She's too young for you. And uh, I thought that was a tie to the original movie that I enjoyed. I enjoyed that, you know, there's a lot, there's a blooming onion of of messages in that line for, for her to say to him. So I liked it. Yeah, true, true, true. Something we haven't really talked about is the is kind of the behind the scenes and the relationship between Boyle and McGregor that had been sullied early on in their careers. A few, like they did this film, they did Shallow Grave, this film, and uh, Life Less Ordinary together. And then Boyle moved on to do The Beach, and Ewan McGregor had kind of fully. I don't know if it was his expectation. I don't know if they had prior conversations about it, but basically was expecting to be the lead of that film. And then it turns out Boyle had cast Leonardo DiCaprio and it kind of broke their friendship. And they hadn't talked for quite a long time. And there was a lot of conversations about, you know, would they be able to work together again in order to make this work? And they did. It was quite a bit of conversation in the conversations when they started, after Porno was released and the conversations were like, are they going to make a sequel to this? How is that going to happen? And it was brought up a number of times by people saying, you know, these two had come together and they had been working on reconciliation and finding a way past that. And so, um, so it was nice to know. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know who else was having issues, but, you know, I believe that... Um, Somebody else had said that there were others in the cast who had had a rocky road, but they had also reconciled. So it makes me wonder, like, you know, what sort of fallout had come from relationships relationships in this film that, you know, um, I, I don't know. I guess it's a thing of time. And, and to your point, I guess, about about Begbie, maybe that's what you're looking for, is that passage of time allowing a person to kind of slowly move past some of these issues. Yes, Andy, yes. This is why we're friends after all these years. You get me. I I actually think I'm not that, saying I agree with you, but I no, <laughs> understand but, you but, on your but point. But at least at least you understand and don't lampoon it. Like I I feel like that's what I'm looking for. And when you look at that at the kerfuffle about the the beach in particular, it was the fact that it was not I, I mean it you know, it's so easy to hear that story and think, "Oh, Ewan McGregor's upset because he didn't get a part." But that that wasn't really the story. The fact was he really had, had the understanding that he was getting the part and found out 
through other means that he wasn't going to be in the movie, not from Boyle. And it was Boyle who came to him on bended knee and said, look, man, we were totally disrespectful to you. We did you wrong. And we're sorry. I am sorry about that. And and went about rebuilding that that relationship and talking about like he's spoken so publicly, Boyle has, about how incredibly generous of spirit and energy Ewan McGregor is and how regret how much regret he has that that he, you know, misused that energy by, you know, mishandling that relationship on the beach. So I, I don't know, like, I, I feel like that is that is a lot of the heart in this movie is like these guys coming to terms with the wrongs that they have done to each other. No one is innocent in necessarily in this movie. I guess maybe Spud is innocent in the movie, but not even really because he took the money from the first movie and didn't tell anybody about it. And that was, you know, in in their eyes, another way to, that he wronged them. Like, no one is innocent in this movie. And and I, I think that that comes from their understanding as adults having lived through wronging each other and wronging others and having to come to terms with that. And he takes money at the end of this movie, although not directly, right. but he does, not he directly, does right. have Veronica <laughs> send money to Gail to take care of her and his son. Does that so, absolve him of of the guilt, though? Does the fact that he has it sent to his, you know, former spouse and child? Uh, I suppose, because he knows, you know, I'm doing it for somebody else. I'm not doing it because if I did it, I would just shoot it up in my veins. Yeah, I do love that he has the whole, uh, you know, lost art of forgery under his belt. The fact that he was able to use <laughs> this, that, that he could chip and pin totally did away with his ability to forge signatures. But here he could. He could forge some signatures was, and make off with yeah. the money. Yeah. And, and that's one of those things where, I mean, inevitably, I suppose they are going to come up. They're going to need to come up with new character traits in a situation like this. But it did feel like. Oh, this is something that they came up with for the sequel because they just need to have this handy tool uh, for Spud to be able to wield at some point. It was never talked about in the first film, but we're going to come up with it here because it's a plot point. And that was that to me was one issue that I'm like, yeah, all right, it's it's written in there. I I'll I'll let them get away with it, but it does feel like you know just coming up with something specifically that's an easy way out that was never brought up in the first film. Yeah, no, I'll agree with that. It's fun. I like it in this context of this movie, but you have you have a good point. Yeah. What do you, can you just talk just briefly about your thoughts on the uh, the look of the film, uh, and particularly in comparison to the first? Yeah, Anthony Dodd Mantle was the DP on this one, and I enjoyed. Like, I mean, it, somebody who's shot plenty of films, a lot of the Dogma ninety five sorts of films has a handle on them, worked with Danny Boyle on 28 Days Later and uh, Millions and Slumdog Millionaire, 127 Hours, Trance, uh, you know, so certainly has been kind of working with him since those early days. But I um, I think that the film looked clean and crisp. There was a lot of play in the film, but I didn't feel the play was quite as special as it was in the first film. Like, we had some... Uh, periodically when something was happening, we would do those freeze frames again. And there were times when it was a freeze frame, like when Begbie attacks the, um, the, uh, what do you call a, an attorney over in the UK? Um, I know it's not solicitor, attorney, but who, barrister. his solicitor, right? His solicitor who's helping him at the prison, talking to him at the beginning about, you know, are you going to push that little yellow button? Like that whole sort of thing. Yeah. And then he leaps over the table and it's a freeze frame as the sirens go off. Like that, is straight out of the first film and it works well over the course of the film. There are periodically like in the middle of uh, something happening, there's a brief freeze frame and then the action continues just to kind of highlight something. And I found those didn't work quite as well for me. There was a lot of play. Like I liked it when, when Renton had to walk up all the stairs to, uh, to Spud's house because the elevator was broken and you see the outside of the building and it's like the elevator numbers are just kind of going up the side of it to, uh, the 13th floor like there were there were moments that Boyle was really playing around with it and then um, it worked well but there was also sometimes play that I guess didn't quite connect or didn't click into the story as much as it did in the first film 
What'd you think about the projection? Like we've already talked about the shadows, which I, and they, they use that trick a couple of times, which, uh, and, and I loved it. I loved it so, so much. There's another later where, um, the car, Renton and, uh, Simon and Veronica are in the car and they're doing Snapchat filters and making faces. And on the outside of the car, there's a projection of history of, of the past, like going by. I think that was, that was one of those neat, tricks demonstrating time and grief passing like here's here's the fact that it's in motion and a projection and of of the path i thought it was really lovely what do you think of those kinds of of things yeah that sort of play where it's they're coming up with an interesting way to kind of incorporate the multiple timelines into this story i i thought were special and it was an interesting way to kind of portray those scenes and to have them play out and even where Sometimes, like you had Spud when he came out, and this was, I think, earlier in the film, but he walks down a street and then he sees, and the way that they chose to portray his memory is he sees himself and Renton running from the, the cops in, like, from that first film at the beginning when we see them running. He's watching that now play out in front of him as if he's reliving that moment, but it's just also playing out like a memory. And so there were a lot of those sorts of things, the way that they chose to incorporate uh, elements like that. I found that they always worked. I, I really liked the way that Boyle was bringing those into the story. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I also like the way he played with video with the the blackmailing. I mean, we haven't talked about the fact that Sick Boy was a is a blackmailer, cocaine addict now, and uh, a blackmailer. And that's how he that's his relationship with Veronica is he would use her. She would uh, go have sex with unsuspecting people in this massage parlor, that, and then he would use footage of that to blackmail them. Um, I, I like that angle for him. That felt like, if if anything, here's a guy who, you know, it, it really leans in on the fact that he was able to get out uh, of the heroin part, but not out of, you know, the hometown and the crime and, and drugs, it, it crime. Felt, I mean, uh, drugs, he's yeah. growing. He was he's growing pot. You know, I mean, he's kind of got everything in you know. contrast to, you know, Spud, who never got out of the heroin, really. Right. And, yeah. and so I, you know, it it. That worked for me, but I, I'm with you. I loved, I loved the way he they play with video and monitors and the cameras and the way you know those things are overlaid on top of one another. That's another set of visual tricks that worked for the character for me. Yeah, I also really liked the the soundtrack. Again, Boyle taps into strong music to kind of click in with what we're seeing here, and I, I felt they it was kind of a nice mix of music, uh, some older tunes, some more recent ones, and I, I just found that the music was, uh, it fits this world, and I just, I like what he does with music in, in this, in these two films. There is a, there's a great sequence when everybody's at the bar, right, the bar they used to go to, and now it's really, really changed, and Begbie is there, and I love the way Carlisle plays this, he takes a drink of his beer and he's watching them drink to a uh, dance to a modern song and they're all dancing in in motion, hopping up and down. And the look on his face is like, I just I can't I'm a stranger <laughs> in a strange land. I don't know how to relate to this. And uh, that leads him going to the bathroom and being side by side in stalls with Renton. And they have that great moment where they recognize voices together. Um, but I, I I just love like this is it's that the bar, it's the club that for me, represents so much of the passage of time through music and through these cultural events of, of the dance. And uh, I thought that was really nice. I thought it was I thought it was great. Yeah, it really was. You got anything else? Yeah, I think that's I think that's about it. So, um, well, we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Alex Grohl, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. sequels and remakes, Andy? Are we going to get another one?
Believe it or not, uh, uh, Danny Boyle has been discussing the possibility of a third film, um, although he's kind of called it a spinoff, focusing on Begbie, based on a different book by Irvine Welsh called The Blade Artist, uh, which also follows uh, Begbie. And now he's going by Jim Francis, working as an artist in California and goes to Scotland to attend the funeral of his murdered son, and then uh, he and his wife come to terms with his dark past. That's kind of the synopsis of the book. Interesting that they are looking at doing that. Robert Carlyle is totally, totally excited about doing it, although, as Danny Boyle said, it would be definitely more of a spinoff. It didn't sound like he was that excited about actually doing the spinoff himself. I don't know if he would just kind of produce it and find other people. Um, he said if he were to return, he would rather do an actual true sequel instead of a spinoff because he really does enjoy these four characters. But Irvine Welsh has hinted of maybe doing a train spotting TV series. And Robert Carlyle actually confirmed that the Beg- Begbie spinoff series is actually in development. So who knows? I mean, I it sounds like I mean, I, I I didn't hear anything from anybody other than Danny Boyle, Robert Carlyle, or Irvine Welch that um, they were talking about stuff. But I don't know. I I'm surprised actually that they are seriously kind of considering doing more stuff uh, with these characters in these worlds. So I guess we'll see. But it certainly piqued my curiosity. Me too. I I can't say I won't see it. Uh, I'm, I'd be very, very curious, particularly putting Begbie in a principal character role, like uh, making him our protagonist, I think is, gives us some interesting opportunity. And particularly you talk about reconciling his dark past with his wife, you know, time passes. What happens? Well, and that his son gets murdered like that. It's like, wow. Okay. Some interesting things have happened in his life. Yeah. How to do an award season. Uh, Not as well as the first one, but it still had six wins with eight other nominations. Over at BAFTA Awards Scotland, again, the Scotland-specific, it had three wins. Best Actor, Ewan Bremner. Obviously, everybody loved The Return to Spud. Best Director also and Best Film. Also, Ewan McGregor and Robert Carlyle were both nominated for Best Actor, but they lost to Ewan Bremner. At the British Screenwriters Awards, the film was nominated for Best Script, but lost to A United Kingdom. Interestingly, a, a last one here, the Golden Trailer Awards, nominated for Best Trailer Bite for a feature film. I was trying to figure out what the heck is a trailer bite. They label it. I, I did find the actual booklet for the uh, Golden Trailer Awards um, from the year, uh, from 2018, and they label it as an Insta, Vine, GIF, Bites, or Blinks. So whatever a blink is, I'm not sure where you watch blinks. Probably Quibi. But that's what a trailer bite is. I, I, I guess it's a piece of a trailer that you use in those <laughs> capacities. But anyway, so it's almost like a mini trailer. It was nominated for that, and theirs was called The Vault, and they lost to the Lego Batman movie. Or, uh, oh, that film. Oh. I couldn't figure out how to watch these either. Uh, the other films that were nominated were Life. Uh, remember that film with yeah. uh, Jake Gyllenhaal? And then Sausage Party. Oh, in Life, theirs was called Mouse. And I'm assuming that's when the little alien takes the mouse. In Sausage Party, it was called Gum. T2 Train Spotting is called The Vault. The Lego Batman movie is called Gotham Cribs Snapchats. And Transformers The Last Night, it was called Microfiche. I really want to watch these uh, just so I can figure out exactly what are these people doing as trailer bites. But unfortunately, I can't find them anywhere. Hmm. All right. Well, that leads us to the box office. Well, Boyle's delayed follow-up to his original breakout hit cost $18 million to make, or $21.9 million in today's dollars. That is more than three and a half times what the first film cost. I guess it's inflation and all those big actor salaries he's paying now? Who knows? The movie premiered in the UK January 27th, 2019, then rolled out worldwide February 10th, with a limited release finally in the US March 17th, where it opened opposite the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast, as well as the Belko Experiment. Opening on just five screens, it landed in 29th place. 
They'd expand the number of screens to 331 eventually, but it never got higher than 15th place at the box office. It went on to earn 2.4 million domestically and 39.7 million internationally for a total gross of 51.4 million in today's dollars. That's just over two and a half times less than what the first one made. But hey, it's still a profit landing with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $250,000. We'll see if they end up returning to this well or not. Well, I'm glad to have returned to the well. I like it. I uh, had a great time with it. It's it doesn't uh, it doesn't completely stand up to the first movie, but I did uh, have a good enough time. Um, you know, coming back to these four characters, that I, I have to tell you, I'm provoked about what a uh, what a trilogy would look like. T three? Do they even do that? Is that where they would go? T three train spotting? I don't know. All right. Well, I'm into it. Had a good time. Yeah, I, I'm glad that we watched it. I enjoyed returning to spend time with these characters, and I would be curious to see a return to it. Uh, even if they don't, I'm I'm fine. But you know, if they did, I would be curious to see what they came up with. Me too. All right. Well, we will be back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, kicking off our new series, John Wick. I'm up. I'm up. You like that, huh? Nice ride. Thanks. How much? Excuse me? How much for the car? She's not for sale. You have good day, sir. Daisy. I lost everything. That dog was a final gift from my dying wife. Jonathan, you got out once. You dip so much as a pinky back into this pond, you may find something reaching out to pull you back in. It's personal. Where'd you get that car? What does it matter? It's not what you did, son. It's who you did it to. Nobody? But nobody. No, just sorting some stuff out. Task your crew. How many? As many as you have. Hey, John. I thought I'd let myself in. People keep asking if I'm back. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. I'm not afraid of John Wick. Uh-huh. How good's your laundry? No one's that good. I thought not. Letterbox, Andy, you know Letterbox. It's our favorite social media network for movie lovers. And uh, we put our reviews, our film diary, our loves and likes and stars and hearts all over at letterboxd.com. We are all updated. We all have uh, gone ahead and forked over a few bucks to Letterboxd to get rid of ads and support the great Kiwi team doing all the work, keeping up uh, the the site and making it fast and awesome uh, and free of nonsense that you might find elsewhere and you could do that too if you decide to upgrade to pro or patron just use the code nextreel at checkout or we've set up a little url for you if you visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd it will whisk you over to the sign up page with 20 percent off already applied 20 percent off pro or patron upgrades what are you going to do andy the last film I gave four and a half stars. I really do enjoy that one quite a bit. I feel like with this one, uh, there were some issues. I still really connected with it, enjoyed the characters, what they were doing with it. I'm going to say four stars and a heart. Me too, Andy. Four stars and a heart. I, I feel like I have some uh, some quibbles. I have just a couple of quibbles, but not terrible, terrible troubles. And uh, I'm, I'm living for 
four solid stars. Fantastic. Well, as Pete said, don't forget, visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. And you can head over to our website, thenextreel.com slash membership, and you can learn about our membership plans where you can get early access to shows, member bonus episodes, extra content, all that good stuff. So what did you think about T2 train spotting? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we will be talking about it this week. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Uh, Andy, Letterboxd giveth. As Letterboxd always doeth. Um, I, I've got a short one. I've got a three-star from Jasmine. <laughs> Actually... Ask the question now I'm not going to be able to let go of. Oh. Jasmine says, is Danny Boyle really trying to tell me that Sick Boy still bleaches his hair 20 years later? <laughs> not only does he still bleach his hair, we actually see him bleaching his hair in this movie. That was actually very important to Boyle. Uh, that he actually, there was, uh, I saw, I think also in the IMDb trivia where somebody said, that Johnny Lee Miller offered to actually shave his head to look older, but Danny Boyle insisted that he retain his iconic blonde hair. That was the right call for that character. Absolutely the right call. But I think it's really, I think it's fascinating. Like, I only get that in hindsight. I think that was, that's a, a little bit of Boyle genius. <laughs> well, there's a person who never has been able to move past his youth, you know? Yeah. Right. As right. Veronica says at some point, you guys are all just, it's all nostalgia. So. <laughs> exactly. What else do we yeah. have? What do you got? All right. Well, I've also got a three star. This one's by, uh, I don't know, Dia, uh, who has this to say, spotted a lot more trains this time. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in that closing <laughs> sequence. The trains on his wallpaper, there's millions yeah. of trains in there as those are going oh, by. So many trains. Mm. So many trains. Thanks, Thanks Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>